Energy Transformed is a short podcast series brought to you from the team at Energy Insiders and Renew Economy, Australia's best informed and most read website focusing on clean energy, news and analysis. Energy Transformed is also brought to you by Ashurst, a progressive law firm offering global reach and insight, combined with local market knowledge and understanding. There's a lot of things that a battery can do and new and emerging things that the batteries can do, but they're not necessarily contracted just yet. And I think this is where the techno-legal uh, element becoming more and more important because that is the, a key part of the solution for those new, new products. You're listening to Energy Transformed, a podcast and webinar series that looks beyond the headlines to take a deep dive into Australia's energy transition. Hello, I'm Paul Kernow, a partner with Ashurst based in Sydney and global co-head of our energy practice. Welcome. We recently kicked off the first in our series with a webinar that asked the crucial question, who rules the market? This followed the final recommendations by the Energy Security Board. It's a good question because we all know the challenges facing Australia's energy market over the next 10 to 15 years as we seek to decarbonise the energy sector in order to get to net zero. In his first public address as the new head of AEMO, Daniel Westerman set a goal for the NEM to be capable of handling 100% renewable energy for certain periods in the day by 2025. We know the NEM is rapidly transitioning to a low emissions generation profile. If you look at AEMO's 2020 integrated system plan, the step change scenario projects 29 gigawatts of large and small scale variable renewables capacity will be built by 2030 alone. And yet, during the same period, our baseload coal capacity is due to decrease by 50%. So, getting to net zero means even greater levels of variable renewable energy, which gives rise to a range of critical technology design and investment decisions that will need to be taken if the NEM is to be fit for future purpose. And so that brings us to today's podcast focus, batteries. Given the rapid energy system transformation, there's a lot of excitement from engineers to market operators, investors, even lawyers, about the crucial role battery energy storage systems can play in our future electricity grid. And with good reason. Batteries are increasingly seen as a key technology enabler to a high renewables net zero grid. So in a market with high renewables penetration, it'll be vital to ensure the ongoing provision of essential system services such as frequency control, inertia, system strength. And we're already seeing a range of battery technologies entering the market that are demonstrating their ability to deliver these services. But deploying and integrating big batteries across the NEM isn't without its challenges and raises some interesting but difficult questions. What markets do battery projects currently have access to? Are they commercially viable? Can battery projects be green? Do they need to be? And will batteries ultimately take charge of the grid? To help wrangle these questions, we've invited one of Australia's leading energy and battery experts, Nick Carter, into the Ashurst Lockdown Studio. Nick is currently Principal at Acacia Energy, based in Melbourne, with a long career in the energy technology industry. He's also worked in energy technology and solutions at Macquarie Capital and as Business Development Manager with Tesla. Also joining me in our battery discussion is Paul Newman, my fellow partner in the Ashurst Energy team who's based in Brisbane. Welcome, Nick and Paul. Good to have you on our very first Energy Transform podcast. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, indeed. 
I've been enjoying our conversations over the last few months and every time we've had them around batteries, I keep thinking we should be recording this and finally we get the chance to do it, to dive into some of the techno-legal issues that we've been chatting about for the past few months. So thanks again for your time. Maybe just to start, Nick, I thought it'd be good to get everyone sort of on the same page in terms of batteries as a technology. When we talk about batteries, what are we actually talking about the range of technology. So do you want to just walk us through briefly you know, batteries? Um, obviously, we've got chemical batteries, we've got pumped hydro and, and lots of other types in between. If you could sort of just give us a quick overview, I think that'd be a good way to start. Sure. Um, I might just start with a bit of a chemical battery overview. I suppose um, lithium, lithium chemistries have been around for quite a while. People are quite familiar with them since the mid sort of 80s or 90s. Um, with respect to those chemistries, as time's gone on, I think the really um, the big move forward was lithium uh, nickel manganese cobalt, which is also called uh, NMC chemistry, which is some of the larger initial big batteries were using that chemistry. And then probably the big thing that's happened more recently over the last five years is the the chemistry often referred to as LFP or lithium lithium iron phosphate, and that's been um, quite a big step forward. A lot of um, electric vehicle manufacturers have really been putting a lot of effort into that chemistry and it's now flowing across to stationary storage, uh, which has been a great a great fit from a safety um, and reliability and cost perspective. So that's, that's probably the biggest um, change there at the moment on lithium systems. But then as you mentioned, Paul, there's also a whole bunch of other things out there in the chemical storage world, including uh, flow batteries, which have sort of not necessarily really taken off at, at scale, but have a, a quite an interesting use case around very long duration storage. There's a few flow battery uh, projects around the world and proposals in Australia. And another one which is very interesting that's quite new as well is from uh, Form Energy in the US, which is an iron air battery, which is effectively um, using the, the oxidization process of, of steel or iron to, to, to store energy, which gives you multi-week or multi-month um, storage depth, similar to, I guess, a large hydro, which is very interesting. Um, and as you mentioned, yeah, we've got large hydro. I think most of the listeners would understand, understand that. Um, and then, of course, the some of the other things that are happening, not just on the DC side of the battery, but the AC side um, as well around new innovations with inverters and those types of things that I think we're going to also touch on um, are really where the innovation ha is happening. So it's not just the, the chemical or mechanical side of, the, of the, the energy storage system, but the AC side as well is where the, the um, innovations are really occurring. Yeah, so I think, as you just mentioned, you know, so then batteries are not all the same. We've got short duration batteries, long duration batteries. Uh, they obviously play very different roles. And I guess the question there is why is everyone getting so excited about batteries when you think of the current energy transition? Uh, and if you think about high levels of renewables uh, in the market, uh, of course, that creates a lot of issues around the grid stability, grid strength, and the role that batteries play. I guess at the moment, there's been a lot of focus on batteries um, as far as energy arbitrage goes and, and how you can store that and use it at later points. But I guess just again to sort of set the scene for our listeners, it's probably worth just walking through 
the breadth of the roles and services that batteries can play. Uh, I mentioned energy arbitrage, but of course the provision of ancillary services such as frequency control has also been uh, a big focus of batteries in, in recent years uh, when we think of some of the batteries that have come on market here in Australia. So if you could also just briefly walk us through the range of services that batteries can currently perform and what are the additional service that we, services that we might see as these battery technologies mature? Mm, certainly. So I think, yeah, as you've mentioned, energy arbitrage is probably the, um, the, the, the bread and butter, uh, if you like, of, of um, battery storage uh, at the moment in Australia and, and around the world. But of course, we've got uh, frequency control, ancillary services, and that, that also includes the, uh, the new very fast sub-two-second um, FCAS market, which is coming out uh, in Australia in the not-too-distant future, which is a very interesting new uh, product for, for a battery. Um, but also there's things that I would call emerging markets or services like um, inertia or virtual inertia services via inertia contracts, potentially, uh, we've got you know the potential to have voltage support services at various points in the network, and then you've got other things like uh, interconnector protection services. So, in other words, if there's a really critical piece of kit or an interconnector, um, you can have as part of the protection scheme for that interconnector uh, a, a system whereby the battery can very very quickly intervene in that uh, piece of critical kit to help protect it. Uh, and that also includes um, other things that you, you can offer as a product, like ramp control services for wind and solar farms. Um, and then, of course, the other one you touched on, which is not um, necessarily straightforward or, or, or a product that exists today, but uh, the one that everyone's thinking about is really uh, deep diving uh, v variable renewable energy firming or how do you have a contract to, to firm those, those assets or fleet of assets is really where it's at. So I think to summarise, Paul, there's, there's some things there that we, we know and love like energy arbitrage and FCAS. And then we, as we move down the spectrum, there's a lot of things that a battery can do uh, and new and emerging things that the batteries can do, but they're not necessarily um, contracted just yet. And I think this is where the techno-legal uh, element that you mentioned before is becoming more and more important because that is the a key part of the solution for those new new products. Yeah, exactly. I think for me, you know, key to unlocking the the, the uptake of batteries and really to scale it up is um, how these services are regulated. And you mentioned, of course, contracting. Uh, we'll come to that from a sort of revenue point of view. But certainly the way batteries are, are regulated within the, within the NEM rules is going to be critical to unlocking that potential. Mm. And if we think of the NEM as it was written in the 90s, you know, it didn't contemplate the battery technologies as they've developed today, or indeed the proliferation and how they would be distributed across the grid. So obviously the rules are playing catch up, which is often the case when, when new technologies are emerging. So I might bring in Paul here, because it'd be good to sort of just also set the scene in terms of the, the regulatory aspects, uh, in terms of how batteries are currently regulated within the NEM. Uh, and I guess it's fair to say at the moment, it's a bit like a square peg in a round hole, but maybe Paul, you can sort of just give us a sense of, of batteries, how they currently fit. And in particular, 
touch on the AMC draft rule, which came out last month, which will, of course, uh, clarify some of these issues, but perhaps not all of them. So, Paul, for me, the, the fundamental issue <coughs> is that the national electricity market was really designed to recognise generation and load quite separately. Pumped hydro was always generation. And I, I say this because, unfortunately, I'm around long enough um, to predate the NEM, so I sort of saw what the issues that were being designed. And, and, and I have ringing in my ears... Um, the very first project I did, we had some American power, uh, independent power producer come out and said, the one thing you need to understand about electricity is you can't store it. So how much we've moved in the last 30 years is quite amazing. But the concept of energy mm. storage and energy time shifting really was a pipe dream the, and, and wasn't really recognised in the rules. Secondly, the thing that um, is the speed in which the battery can actually respond was really never envisaged in the national electricity rules. And sort of contrasting with what we've seen as the development of the, obviously the VREs, um, this is an active facility rather than a passive generator like the solar and wind. So to date we've seen energy storage being recognised as both a generator and a load. Um, and certainly for some of the early uh, battery storage projects, um, the rules just didn't really deal with it at all. AEMO issued a fact sheet in 2018 that tried to grapple with the way in which you would integrate uh, energy storage with uh, solar and wind and, and developed a hybrid model, which is, is sort of being developed from there. And the recent proposed rule change, which is due to start in April 2023, has picked up on that hybrid concept and has looked to integrate that into the national electricity rules, um, providing for a single integrator resource provider registration and would make the hybrid model part of the national electricity rules. Um, there's still a ways to go, but it's a it's a certainly a, a forward step in um, dealing with what are quite complicated regulatory issues in this area. Yeah, so the integrated resource provider will, of course, clarify a bunch of those issues, as you mentioned. One of the concerns, I guess, that, that's been raised, speaking to, to those active in the market, is, of course, the proposal as part of the AMZ draft rule that uh, batteries would be charged use of system charges. And I guess that's raising you know, a lot of concerns about the what it does in terms of the economics of batteries uh, and you know, the, the rollout. What is your view on that? I mean, how do you see NSPs uh, responding to to that, uh, that, char that, that guidance from the AMC? Yeah, so Paul, I, I look at this at the rule change, and I think there's three key issues that remain unresolved. And, and the, the issues that were identified in some of the early battery rollout, particularly the Ganawara Energy Storage Project um, and, and the way in which you retrofit or co-locate. So, so the first one, um, to my mind, is the one you've just mentioned, which is about the way in which uh, use of system charges are to apply. Um, and this is, this is universal, not just to um, the co-located arrangements. Um, AEMO, when it actually made the rules request, um, suggested that use of system charges shouldn't be applied to batteries even though they were a load. Um, I think to many commentators' surprise, the AMC recommendations in the draft rules, in fact, the opposite, and effectively said that um, the rules need to be technologically neutral um, and therefore um, they weren't going to uh, make any changes of any significance other than 
deal with the integrated resource provider registration on those part of the rules and effectively said, as at today, network service providers are capable of um, charging use of system charges. I, to my mind, that doesn't really go to recognise the true network benefits that come from a battery, even if it's operating as an IRP, things like power system security, grid stability benefits, the sorts of, and, and the ability of batteries in fact to provide a number of services at the same time. So that to me, the, the common, sorry, the um, submissions are due on the 16th of September, so later this week. And it'll be very interesting to see how many people actually raise issues around this use of system charge. So the two other issues just to mention um, is uh, on the retrofit side of things, I think the issue of whether the generator performance standard for the existing facility, which is typically a solar or wind facility, needs to be updated and go through a, a further process when you actually add a battery to that uh, as a retrofit. And obviously that's certainly one of the physical goals is to is to have co-location. Um, I think there's a real exposure there. And uh, some of the difficulties you're having with financing and structuring of these projects where you've got multiple types of generation or facilities behind a single connection point, um, which give rise to embedded networks and create regulation that if you if you look on the ground, the position is actually exactly the same, but we're through regulation, we actually um, inhibit um, separate ownership behind that connection point. And I think there are three key things that, that are going to create limitations with the rollout of the uh, proposed rule change. So Nick, you've um, been looking at how you deploy batteries and, and obviously looking at how you can do this in the real market. How do you view the, the draft rules in the AMC? Does it sort of answer all your questions and concerns about how you would actually make these batteries bankable and, and economic? Yeah, I, look, I'm, I'm overall net positive about the rule change because I think it is required and there is a, um, a, a definite need for it. And I think if it's done, done right, then it will, um, it will be of benefit to, to investors and developers uh, in that context. I guess the part that's, that's hard and unclear really is, um, as was mentioned by Paul, that the, the, the use of system charges, I think, is a, is a big potential problem. Uh, I think there's a lot more discussion that needs to happen around that uh, because that could that could be a, um, a a revenue killer for a battery, as as we've seen with a couple of other uh, batteries that are connected that need to pay use of system charges. But I think what what this rule does do is really open up new ways of thinking about co-located VRE, whether it's greenfield or uh, brownfield sites, um, and it also could have quite a, quite an interesting use case or impact on some of the thinking around uh, renewable energy zones around the place and how you actually integrate storage into them um, instead of you know what's happening now to some extent where people are, are looking at building separate standalone batteries that becomes much more of a co-located scenario with with VRE and one of the benefits of course of that is that you're, you're starting to leverage um, connection assets that already exist for the renewable plant itself. And if there is a framework to allow uh, economic co-location of the BEZ, then I think, Paul, to your, to your question, it is a net benefit, but there is a lot of um, discussion and water to flow under that bridge, I think, before we're there. Yeah, I think you've raised a good point in terms of 
for me there's been a sort of a obviously there's a, a sort of a fight within if you think of the the flow of electrons across the the, the chain where the batteries best fit and, and of course the batteries have a role at at all points uh, you mentioned reses and i guess if you think of batteries in that context they're really providing a service into the res and i guess perhaps a better scene as, as something that's coordinated at the whole of grid level rather than just at a single project level but of course uh, there's many options there's many models in the market and, and a lot of different uh, players who, who would look at that differently and i guess that sort of brings us on to the revenue side because at the end of the day these projects only really work if they're going to make uh, make money and, and there's a economic advantage to doing it and so we've seen in recent years that particularly with these additional essential services that have not yet been fully realized batteries have tended to rely on a combination of grants so we've seen arena we've seen state governments and others sort of subsidize capital costs uh, as well as some form of capacity payment and in some cases that's topped up by fcas revenue and of course the hornsdale power reserve is probably uh, the best case in point or the best example there. So maybe just to pick up again, um, Paul, sort of coming out of that that rule change, and if you think about the revenue models that have been tracking uh, the development of batteries over the last 12 to 18 months, we've certainly seen the emergence of a few new models, uh, tolling structures, as well as network service payment models. Can you just sort of talk us through how those different revenue structures work and why would a battery operator choose one over the other. So one of the things that strikes me is is the sort of structures we're seeing now are in some ways the easiest to implement and the most bankable at the moment. Um, and we'll talk a bit later, but there are some limitations as to how many of these there will be in the marketplace, which then means that you need to look at other models. But effectively, I think, the, the, as you mentioned, the, there's the government-supported models, and I, I think that that will cease to be really viable other than through something like the uh, Latessa process in New South Wales. But it's the two that sort of are current and I think we'll, we'll talk about for a little while now, uh, or, so in the next you know, 12, 24 months, so is the Energy Storage Services Agreement. That is really an infrastructure rental model. So from the point of view of the developer, build the battery, charge a monthly charge to somebody to effectively have all the dispatch rights to an off-taker, so effectively all of the market revenue and market participation is with the off-taker and the typical counterparty we've seen to those are people like Energy Australia and AGL who then utilise that battery in a way that suits their portfolio um, from that point of view um, and, and uh, doing both energy arbitrage and some ancillary services. The second one is a network support model. And, and this is where you've sort of got a mix of some physical obligations, effectively obligations that you as a developer need to provide certain services to the network to provide um, services that provide support. And that may be only for a limited number of periods in the whole of the year. And then outside of those periods, the um, developer or owner of the battery is entitled then to participate otherwise in the broad range of markets that are available. Limited dollars paid by the network service provider um, for those services. Um, so then you go into the issue around um, what other revenue sources you have and are available. The thing about both of those models is certainly the energy storage services agreement has been banked both with government support and 
um, commercially without government support, um, particularly the Wandoan battery developed by Vina is a good example of those. So I think we'll still see those models, but they do have a sort of, to my mind, a time limitation before other models need to uh, be adopted to replace those. Yeah, and of course, key to all of these models is, you know, if you think about bringing in debt finance, is it bankable? How do the banks look at this? Uh, and certainly, as you say, the sort of energy storage services agreement model, that sort of tolling structure has had the benefit of, of being bankable from the from financier's point of view, particularly with the credit worth of taker. And I guess, though, the question is, you know, how, how do we see batteries in terms of the revenue models developing over the next few years, particularly as we get greater clarification on, on the, the treatment under the rules. Um, and I guess for me and things we've we've already been talking about is this holy grail of revenue stacking. So this idea of using a battery across multiple markets, whether that's energy arbitrage or different essential services as, as Nick described. Uh, obviously, I think we've got a way to go in terms of uh, the market and participants being comfortable with that, let alone financiers. but. It's a very interesting area to think about in terms of the way that you can separate the physical operation of the battery and what you as an owner operator do with the battery across those different markets versus the financial arrangements that you enter into that, that drive the revenue. Um, and I think we're just starting to see the market sort of start to think about how that could actually play out. Uh, and I know, Paul, as you said, you, you've been working in the energy market for some years and, and obviously before the NEM was even set up uh, and you talk about the way in which the coal and gas generators particularly at the beginning of the NEM started to build up a so-called hedge book on the basis of forward contracted revenue as a way to sort of unlock that debt financing and that's of course if you think about revenue contracts that's the exact opposite of a long-term tolling structure because you don't have uh, that sort of single offtake 10 year, 15 year plus fixed price, like we've seen, for example, with uh, PPAs in the renewables market. So I'm just keen to get, get yours and, and, and also Nick's thoughts on, on that model and, and how you see that playing out. Yeah, so it, I definitely do feel it's a bit of a case of back to the future, and maybe I've been around too long, Paul, but the, the, from my point of view, um, the, the issue, the, the ability you have with a battery, which is sort of quite different from a passive wind or solar generator is, is in fact what you can do with the battery from a physical point of view and what markets you can service that are in addition to basically receiving a financial stream for the sale of energy. So to, to my mind, I look and say, well, how do you separate what are the financial arrangements while allowing the owner operator of the battery to actually take advantage of other revenue sources that are available um, outside of uh, the energy market itself or um, in, in a way to respond to the energy market that's different from how it contracts. So a couple of things that I think this really does do is it allows a, a multiplicity of contracts. So you sort of the concept of revenue stacking and revenue slicing is available. So um, you, you may well be looking at a retail, you may be looking at firming some a, a, a VRE, for example, through those arrangements. Secondly, unlike the sorts of banked arrangements we have both for batteries and even for the VREs at the moment, they don't need to be as long term. Um, the banks need to actually then understand uh, that what will happen is they will be replaced over time. And that's well, that's the process that happened from about the mid, the late 90s through to about 
2005, as the coal-fired generators and gas-fired generators initially had to be 100% contracted to be able to get banked and slowly but surely moved to a hedge book type of model where they were effectively given rules of racing as to the types of um, contracting they could do, the sort of uh, spread of longer term and shorter term arrangements and the extent to which, in fact, the balance of the generation was was merchants. So I think that's, looking back at those sort of models, it's actually very adaptable and, and appropriate for these arrangements because it really allows a sophisticated uh, operator of the battery to sort of lock in um, revenue contracts, but at the same time, take full advantage of other opportunities in the market. And, and the thing about a battery with the capacity to actually provide services all at the same time, different types of services, at, 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 sort of the, at that millisecond, um, really, I think, opens up to sort of saying, well, then we've got the uh, contractual and financial arrangements locked away, but then allow for developer and banks to look at um, sort of other opportunities to support the revenue. Yeah, and I think what you highlight there is a, there's a level of complexity here, and which is probably no surprise why we've seen the tolling arrangements so far under the long-term energy service arrangements as being pretty well favoured in the market because it's a lot easier from a developer's point of view and, and certainly keeps the banks comfortable. Uh, but I guess, Nick, how, how do you look at this? I know you've been closely looking at how you could potentially revenue stack. Do you see this as something that's viable in the next sort of one or two years or is this further down the track? Yeah, look, um, I think it is viable in the next one to two years, but uh, there is, there is again, quite a bit of um, thinking uh, that needs to go into this and just picking up on what both of you have just said that, you know, a tolling contract now like the ones at Gunawara or Ballarat, which are in the public domain, um, they are bankable and they're fairly well understood. But I think, uh, Paul, as you mentioned, it is going to become more complex and it's complex in a number of ways because you um, start to interweave contracts and whether they are contracts for capacity or, as we've mentioned, you know, an inertia or a voltage contract or uh, even a, a cap contract, for example, from the ASX, all of those things uh, need to be able to talk to each other and have a, a physical potential impact via the contract on the battery uh, and acting in those markets. And I think the art form that you've mentioned is really around um, that techno-legal view and having a contract that can have multiple use cases uh, all on top of each other across all those markets. And the other nuance here, which is often... Uh, not thought about is that some of those markets, for example, FCAS contingency, uh, are autonomous, meaning that the battery uh, responds at a local level to that um, to, to that market. So you've got to, uh, when you think about the complexities of that, plus dispatching and bidding uh, across uh, all of those markets together, that's where you have... Um, quite a bit of complexity and it really boils down to how that contract looks uh, for, for that for that battery site. So it's, it's clearly a non-trivial problem, um, but it is doable. It just means that I think it's going to take a, a few years for these contracts to slowly walk from uh, a vanilla tolling contract and starting to interweave more and more of these other other elements into it. But ultimately, you'll end up with 
with a revenue stack that's got many different uh, components to it. Yeah, well, I think you make a really good point because if you think about contracts that, that you sign up to, some of those are going to have a whole range of requirements as to physically what you can do to the battery. Obviously, under a tolling arrangement, you're giving all that sort of dispatch and rights and how it's operated to, to the off-taker. But, mm. And I guess this comes back to my sort of earlier point that to get to where we're, to get to that model, we have to have less uh, less physical requirements under those contracts uh, and really just the sort of financial outcome. But as you say, we're, we're some way away from that and I guess it's a level of comfort in the market to, to move towards that. Yeah, I think that's right, Paul. Just Just probably adding one more point to that is you asked about whether that revenue stacking philosophy um, that we've just discussed is bankable. And I, and I would say, um, as per Paul Newman's example around um, how people and the banks are viewing this, I think over time what we're going to see is that as the complexity goes up, you're going to end up with contracts that are partially merchant still. So they still have some merchant exposure, but they also have a chunk which is contracted. It could be capacity or tolling, so partially tolling a battery. And then possibly having some grid service contracts for inertia or, or other elements on, on the sides. So that's kind of the, the way I see the Venn diagram of, of future contracting for the battery. Is that bankable? That's a good question. I think like all of these things, it's going to take time for the banks to get comfortable. But I feel like if you've got a spread between short-term, long-term contracts and a bit of merchant in, in the mix, that that's, that's something that's quite... Um, interesting and potentially bankable so let's so let's come back now nick to i guess the range of services that batteries currently provide and i guess if you think of some of the esb reforms what they will be providing going into the future um, and you talked about obviously in the high renewables grids so grids with high variable renewable energy uh, within those those markets uh, and the role that batteries can play across some of those other essential system services. Um, VRE is just another acronym uh, that's, uh, that we all get used to. The other one that um, is creeping in is IBR. So can you just tell us what is IBR and why is this now such a technical focus for grid operators and policymakers? Mm, sure, so IBR stands for inverter-based resource, uh, which effectively means, uh, well, pretty much everything that's not a synchronous machine. So um, whether it's a DC link interconnector or a solar farm or a wind farm uh, with current technologies, they're all classified as IBRs. And the other point here, I suppose, um, without getting too technical, is we've got a couple of classes, if you like, of IBRs. Uh, you've got current source and voltage source IBRs. And uh, at a very high level, um, current source is a grid following methodology and uh, voltage source is is really around a uh, grid forming uh, philosophy and I think um, to your point what's what we're seeing now is that um, the IBRs that are in that that um, grid following uh, mode are really seen potentially as a detriment to the to the network strength in a particular area uh, on the whole as opposed to being a net neutral or net benefit uh, to the to the network whereas grid 
grid forming um, is starting to be seen as, as more of a net benefit to the network. And I think this whole uh, topic around um, how we deal with this high VRE penetration and grid forming inverters that have virtual synchronous machine uh, modes are going to become really uh, quite critical. Um, I think, you know, the ES00 um, or AEMO re recently released their ES00 for the NEM and, and one of the big, you know, quite alarming uh, things that leaps out of that when you look at that is the, the uh, minimum demand on the NEM uh, forecast. Um, and what's that, what that's showing is, you know, we're basically going to run out of um, inertia at some point because we just don't have enough spinning machines left during these times of peak solar production. Uh, and that's where things like uh, virtual synchronous machine mode on new new IBRs with new features is starting to become really critical. Um, and that's going to help in a number of ways across all those areas. So I think what we're seeing is um, really uh, virtual synchronous machines providing um, synthetic inertia uh, as, a, as a primary use case. And those, those things are going to become more and more important. I suppose the other point to make is that one of the main tools right now for this um, lack of, of synchronous inertia is really um, syncons. Uh, and, you know, the, the example in South Australia of putting in, in syncons is, is a good one uh, in that context. And I suppose I don't have anything against syncons uh, per se, but um, they are a, a sort of one uh, one trick pony, so, so to speak. Whereas, um, as we've been discussing, a battery can offer that synthetic inertia whilst doing many other things. And, and, and therefore, as opposed to being a net cost uh, to have um, syncons, you've actually got something that, that costs money but can produce revenues in a number of ways and actually help support the, uh, the rollout of VRE going forward. So I think this topic of minimum demand and um, inertia is going to become more and more important. And it should also be noted that other places like um, Tasmania, even though they're part of the NEM in the ESOO main graph are kind of excluded, they've also got minimum demand uh, considerations, as does the WEM. So this is not a problem that's going to go away uh, whether it's the NEM or other parts of, of Australia or even even Asia. Yeah, so you mentioned the minimum demand um, issue, and of course the ESOO sort of highlights that around the, the inertia issues. But if we think of um, syncons versus virtual, virtual synchronous machines, I mean, how does that play out from a cost point of view? I mean, the, the battery you're describing, a VSM, as I understand it, you know, is really the the next cutting edge level of technology around batteries. So where does that sort of stack up from an economics point of view? How commercially viable is it at the moment? Mm. So that's a great question. I think if you do a direct back-to-back -back of a Syncon versus a battery with these advanced features like virtual synchronous machine mode, I think, and this is very uh, high level and generalised, but the battery will, will cost more. For, for a given amount of inertia or a use case. However, as I was saying, the, the, the fact that the battery can actually make money in various markets uh, over and above providing that synthetic inertia means that you can claw back. It's not just a, a sunk cost on your balance sheet. You can actually make money out of it. So that's, that's one point. The other point 
that you've mentioned is what what does it actually cost? And and I think the really important thing when thinking about an IBR with virtual synchronous machine capabilities is that um, the bulk of that that capability is really software. So it's not necessarily um, huge hardware changes. It's mainly software and the way that the control system works to mimic a synchronous machine is is primarily about the software and whilst it's not easy software is generally um, cheap and and doable compared to hardware changes so I think the delta Paul that you were kind of asking about between an advanced high feature inverter versus a a, a traditional inverter is not not that high uh, because it's primarily a software focus so um, there's some good examples out in the market of course around the the Dalrymple Hitachi ABB battery. I think the, the Tesla uh, Hornsdale extension is also demonstrating some of these um, more advanced capabilities. So I think the key the key really here is um, is getting AEMO uh, 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 and others and, and, and grid companies to start accepting and looking at um, what what these things can do. So we've we've sort of been through the different technologies we've talked about. Uh, the different services that they can provide, uh, particularly as the rules evolve. Uh, I guess the other angle to all of this is really the the sort of corporate market. If you think about corporate PPAs and the appetite that's grown in that market over the last four or five years in Australia, but also globally, you know, reflecting net zero commitments and corporates wanting to be 100% renewables. We've seen in just the last 12 months or so, a real progression from 100% renewables to this concept of 24-7 carbon-free energy, which I think perhaps Google uh, Google coined. And that's really this idea that rather than looking at renewables procurement on an annualised basis, you look at it on an hourly basis. And so Google uh, make the point that on an annualised basis, they've reached 100% through their procurement program in the last couple of years. But on an, on an hourly basis, it's only 60% or a little bit above 60% of their global energy load. And so their, their target is to get to 24-7 carbon-free energy. And that's a huge challenge, of course, um, to get energy grids to, to net zero. So I wanted to sort of just to pick that up now and talk about the role of batteries in helping corporates reach these clean energy targets. Um, and a question to you, Paul, I guess, in terms of from a both a contracting and a sort of market-facing point of view, one of the issues with that is how do you sort of make sure that the, the, the battery uh, is green at all, all times as it's being used? And so this so-called greenwashing issue arises as we use batteries uh, in relation to corporates procuring energy. So how do you see that being managed by both operators um, and also the, the corporates? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. and. Um, I mean, I think obviously to date it's been the rise of um, sort of the, the VRE and, and, and as you say, the, the generation side of things, but with the rise of the need for, you know, be more confident about green electrons and, in fact, green hydrogen, you then turn to what are the techniques. I mean, so the obvious one is physical connection. We, we will definitely see co-location. I've talked before about some of the issues associated with that. That will, that will form part of it, but I think the vast majority um, of the way in which you deal with the charging of the battery from the grid and to ensure that that is charged in, in a green way will be through financial arrangements. And it's a financial arrangement 
with the VRE is, is a clear way in which to um, support the uh, expansion of the renewable generation um, at the same time as um, dealing with the charging of the battery at those periods. And it sort of is almost symbiotic because of the capacity later. Um, it, it's sort of time shifting for the battery to in fact support and firm the VRE. The other technique um, which, which we have seen used um, is obviously the use of LGCs or ACUs or other voluntary products. And, and certainly those have been around for some time going back to the Green Benefit Scheme where people voluntarily uh, surrender these sorts of products. And we've seen those used for other commodities like LNG and the like. So I suspect we'll see a variety of those three principal techniques, um, more, probably more likely those that are contractual rather than physical. Yeah, certainly listening to some of the remarks from, from the head of energy at Google, they, they talk about uh, exactly that. And, and so corporate procurement, uh, whether that's sort of, a financial PPA only gets you sort of so far in batteries, whether that's sort of co-location, physically use of batteries, but within a portfolio, I think is going to be, well, they talk about that being very, very yeah. important. Paul, I think that's quite important. The, the obvious thing is that energy storage is not, and that's connected directly to the grid, is drawing electrons that are not green. And that's and how, it's really how you manage that. So, um, Nick, just to sort of, close out then our discussion, I want to sort of pick up on that last point around uh, how batteries, and you mentioned this earlier, the way that batteries can provide firming services, particularly if you think of all that VRE in the market. And so if you think about batteries then being deployed, do you see that really playing a, a role within portfolios? Is that sort of the you know, commercially, economically, what are you, one of the biggest opportunities for batteries, the way that they can um, be a service to those that have VRE portfolios or indeed using batteries within that mix? Or do you see, you know, do you see these being very much viable sort of uh, each battery standalone? Mm, it's a great question. I think uh, the evolution in, in my view is that um, People, developers are going to continue to do standalone, one by one, batteries often not co-located with VRE, um, partially due to the, the rule change discussion that we just had around co-location, and that will be the dominant um, way that people move forward. I would say in the next 24 to 36 months, maybe with a with a with a tolling contract, but I, I really don't think that's the um, where it's going to end up. I think there's a much more economic uh, and more sophisticated view, which is around that that portfolio view that you've just mentioned, Paul, where you've got uh, a, a fleet of VRE, uh, potentially multiple uh, batteries of different durations, um, different chemistries. Some of them may be co-located with VRE, some of them not, uh, and a suite of different contracts um, for those batteries, uh, including firming the portfolio. And then the really difficult thing is going to be managing those assets altogether uh, to create the lowest firmed cost of delivered energy from, from the, the portfolio. And I think that's really the holy grail and where it's going to end up. And what's really interesting about that line of thinking, of course, is that if you uh, think about, say, a large hydrogen facility, for example, which, which needs the lowest cost firmed power or energy that it can get, this is where uh, those large loads are going to going to be served via that philosophy. So, I, so I really do see 
not sure of the timing, Paul, but probably three to five years' time, this is where this is where it's going to be. I think VRE portfolio with with multiple different storage devices and and should actually add. It's not just batteries, of course. It could be um, uh, pumped hydro and, and hydro as well as part of that that portfolio. Yeah, well, so many so many issues to dive into. Uh, we've run out of time, unfortunately. So uh, we'll have to leave it there. But so many other things we could pick up. You talked about um, EVs and integration of that, DC coupled models behind the meter. And then, of course, other, as you say, other storage technologies beyond the sense of, of batteries. Hydrogen, of course, being a, a big uh, future there. But uh, that's all we've got time for today. So thanks again for both of you for your joining the discussion, your insightful contributions. It was really great. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. You've been listening to the first in our series of Energy Transform podcasts, brought to you by Ashurst and Renew Economy. I'm Paul Kernow, Global Co-Head of Energy at Ashurst, and today I was joined by Nick Carter, Principal at Acacia Energy, and Paul Newman, also a partner at Ashurst. The next part of our Energy Transform series will be a live webinar on October 13th, where we'll be focusing on how we can get to net zero. There'll be more details on the Renew Economy website in coming days. I hope you can join us.